I'm Carol Joy Side, and welcome to the Homeschool Made Simple podcast. You're listening to episode 42. This is a podcast to help you homeschool simply, inexpensively, and enjoyably. Well, today we are revisiting with a friend, David R. Godin, one of the giants in the publishing industry and a sweet friend of mine for many years. Welcome, David. I'm so honored to have you again. Today, I wanted to revisit where we left off from our previous episode and talk about the history of some of the great books that you have championed and introduced to the homeschool and children's literature community. All right, talk to me about Donald Hall. He is a a treasure in our family's life. Um, He, of course, is best known in homeschool circles for uh, the Oxcart Man with Barbara Cooney, uh, but he is just such a brilliant, I know he died recently, yep. just a brilliant writer yep. and uh, A String Too Short to Be Saved is just such a great book of essays. Tell me about how you came to work with Donald Hall. Well, that usually these things are very serendipitous and this had to do with the Steinauer Press, which was really the last great letter press and later offset operation in in New England. Yes. A scholarly press set up their way in northern the kingdom of Vermont <laughs> and Lunenburg. And Viking had published that book. And for some reason, and this was not usual, they had commissioned Steinauer to print a letterpress in Bembo. And I was printing a book up there. And I, I, I saw this on the table. And I was staying in Lancaster at the hotel. And I took it home and I read it and I thought, boy, this is really charming. I didn't know who Donald Hall was. Um, And I quickly found out who Donald Hall was because I wrote him. And if you wrote Donald Hall, I mean, you got a letter every three days. I mean, he was the greatest greatest letter writer of all time, as was his mother, who wrote a letter every single day. And if you visited him, which I did in New Hampshire, yeah. You know, he hadn't thrown away anything, nor had his parents or his grandparents. He was living <laughs> in the Keniston household. They yeah. had the rights about it and string too short. Yes. He was in Stanford, I think Stanford, Connecticut. And he used to go up there every summer to work on the farm with his grandfather, Keniston. And that's, those were clearly his fondest memories. And he wrote about them in individual chapters um, what really was a disappearing, this was Southern Vermont in the 1930s and 1940s. It was definitely the dairy industry was on its way out, but you could still make a living with 30 cows, which is what they had yes. milking them. And that was it. A little maple sugaring in the side, some lumbering. And he just, he brings that part of New England and that era in New England to life, I think, in that book, like no one else. I mean, what yes. life was like at a farm. Yes. At Christmas, at Thanksgiving. Right. Um, he lived, oh, well into his 80s. Um, we, I just finished his book, it, it, Life at 80s, which talks about, um, and it's, it's, it's Donald Hall to the core. I mean, when I visited him, he was sitting in the same chair, which I think he had sat in for 10 years after Jane Kenyon's wife died. 
he had very loyal helpers up there um, who yeah. would come and he would dictate, they would type out all of his letters. So the latter ones were typed mm. um, by his secretary, not his helper really, yes. um, not handwritten, but he was really a piece of work and <laughs> had an amazing wife. I mean, was was married first in England to a sweetheart from, I think he met her in Michigan. I think she was a student in Michigan. They were very young when they married. They traveled all through Eastern Europe together in this car. Yes. Amazing story about that. Divorced, I think, 15 years later. Then he married again. And that was clearly the love of his life. Yes. Um, and he was really devastated when she died. But yeah. those books are wonderful. And my, I, I love String Too Short. I guess that's my favorite. My second favorite is definitely Christmas at Eagle Pond because yeah. <laughs> you read this book and it's, it's like it really happens. He describes everything, getting in the train out of North Station, getting off at this little whistle stop at Wilmot, the, the sleigh coming and picking him up, bringing him back to the house, the snowstorm, the Christmas celebration, what they ate, the aunts and the uncles, the hermit who comes down and stays with them, going back, just making the train. And at the very end, he, there's this confessional where he basically says, you know, this is a great story and I hope you recognize it as such, but it never really happened. This is <laughs> clearly my, this was the Christmas I always wanted, always imagined and never had. Oh. And we read it every Christmas, and it, it still brings tears to everybody's it, eyes. It's a beautiful book. And Mary Azarian uh, partnered with him with the man who lived alone, right? Yeah, which was a true story. I mean, he, okay. comes to the, he comes to the Christmas dinner. He was a hermit who was clearly, I think, abused as a youth. Yes. The book is really, you know, very obliquely about child abuse, because this yeah. is the result of it. He's, he's a, not a hermit. He, he is just living alone. He decides right. that he, he's better off in life being alone, which is not the same as being lonely. There's nothing yeah. lonely about him. He visits his nieces and his nephews. <laughs> that book is a funny story, too, because he really did catch mice and he fed them to his pet owl. <laughs> and we thought, and Mary agreed, this would make a great cover for the book. We'll have him feeding a mouse to the pet owl. And of course, this like a number of things we did turned into a total disaster because we got letters from animal lovers everywhere saying, how dare you? So we, in the third or fourth edition, we basically did away with a mouse and was there under a tree doing nothing. But I love the early editions. And if I can come back to Mary Azarian, that comes yeah, back to another favorite her. book of mine, yeah. John Barleycorn. Yes. which is, I think, her favorite book, too. It's the old English ballad about the transmogrification of um, barley into beer and yes. what goes through it. And at the end, of course, barleycorn is killed to make the beer. But it's a great ballad, and she loved it, and she illustrated it. Yes. And she, she made the mistake, or it wasn't a mistake, but... In her introduction, which we maintained in the second edition, yeah. she basically gives instructions of how to brew beer in a bathtub. You know, these are the ingredients. This is how you do it. And if, can you imagine the library reviews? I mean, every one of them said, this is a terrific book. What was the publisher thinking when he included, you know, directions of 
brewing beer in your bathtub. And I remember writing a letter to Library Journal, yes, saying, yes, I'm sure there are hordes of American children making their way to their closest Whole Foods, buying the ingredients, and unbeknownst to their parents, secretly brewing in the bathtub, you know, uh, gallons and gallons of beer, and then drinking it. This is a scourge the, the country definitely should be aware of and do everything to avoid. <laughs> never heard back. <laughs> it was one of those scares that never happened. Fortunately, the American youth population survived this. Well, tell me about Farmer's Alphabet, because I love that book. Well, and that's one of my favorites, yeah. Well, she was, she was fairly young when we did this. She had gone to Smith. This all, you know, everything goes around in a circle. And she had studied with Leonard Baskin. Okay. And Baskin was a great woodcutter. And Harold McGrath was there who printed the woodcuts and cut many of them, I think, the big ones. And that's where Mary learned how to cut wood. Yes. And she cut pine. She didn't, Leonard worked um, on plywood. She worked on hard pine. Okay. And her tradition was clearly Northern German. I mean, if you look at the figures ah. and you look at the, this was not the, rent, the Italian Renaissance. This was Northern Germany in the 16th century. Yes. And that's true, I think, of all of her books. The figures are just bold, they're stark, they're black, they're not done in a fine outline. They are really, uh, they sort of hit you and Yes. It enables her to cut quickly because she's not doing wood engraving. She's doing wood cutting with a knife on the plank. Yeah. And I, oh, so how I came to this book was yeah. my folks had a house, still have a house in Vermont on a dirt road. And a clot across the road was a book, a teacher. And there was still a one room schoolhouse okay. on the road. And Gladys would go there every day, school day. And she would teach first through fifth grade, fifth graders. And they would teach each other, each, each other. And Vermont, God bless them, had the wisdom to see that flashcards were something that would really help homeschoolers as well as this really was homeschooling. It was just homeschooling the school because yeah. the fifth graders were really teaching the third graders. Yes. And so we were there one weekend, and I remember. Gladys coming across the road with this little pack of cards. And she said, she said, these are really neat. You know, the state of Vermont has commissioned Mary Azarian to do these flashcards, A through Z, yeah. which show country scenes, the uppercase letter and the lowercase letter. Yeah. And kids are really relating to this. And, you know, A was for apple. Yeah. You know, M was for maple sugar, not McDonald's. It was yeah. really... And U was for underwear. That's right. <laughs> it's one of my favorite. It was for underwear. Right. Long underwear. <laughs> Long underwear. In front of the stove. Yes. <laughs> in front of the stove. Right. Yes. Um, so I thought this was great. And I, I didn't know Mary Azarian, but Gladys found her address and she was living up in Plainfield. And I remember visiting her and agreeing, her agreeing to do the book. And she was working very quickly in this little shed that she had outside the farmhouse yes you know barely looking up at me i mean she was basically she was working yeah. i was asking a lot of questions and her then husband was out indeed plowing the field with oxen i mean this wow. was 
really went back wow. to the 19-teens and 1920s, heated entirely with wood. You know, they made practically everything they ate. She was a very early back to the lander. I think yes. this was before she discovered bridge, which basically the game of bridge is now supplanted most of this. But <laughs> um, she was delightful, and she we did oh many of her books. I yes. mean, she did she illustrated books for us. Um, she did her own books. She did other people's books, yes. um, and she was she never wanted royalties, which astounded me. I mean, she would. <laughs> she would be quite wealthy today, but she I remember when she won the um the Caldecott for illustration. Caldecott is for illustration. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember I was sitting at the piano and I was practicing and the phone rang and I got up to answer and she said, This is Mary, I'm calling from Plainfield. Very gruff. She said, This is award. Have you ever heard of this award? It's called the Caldecott. And they want me to come to Philadelphia and give some sort of speech and I'm 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 busy here. I've got a farm to run. I mean, is, is this worth it? <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I mean, the call the cot the next day is fifty thousand copies out the door. I mean, nobody asks any questions. You win the call the cot. You, maybe the Nobel is better, but this is a good award to win. Said Barry, you know, get in the train, go to Philadelphia, give your speech, be grateful, take the check, you'll be rich for the rest of your life. Yeah. And she did. <laughs> she was grateful. <laughs> I thought it was such yeah, a great thought. So are you familiar with my literature-based approach to education, but still unsure of what it looks like for your family? For over 30 years, I've helped families custom fit their children's education to their specific needs. The beauty of education done this way is that it fits like a tailored suit. If you find yourself making do or wondering how to best help your child, or you simply have questions, I'm available to you. Consider booking an appointment today. You can visit my website, caroljoyside.com forward slash consulting to learn more. Fill out the book now form and my assistant will be in touch to schedule a time that works for you. Don't lose sleep over unanswered questions. Let's work together to make homeschool simple. Now back to the show. Well, and David, I heard that in Vermont, they, they made large poster size of each letter and put them along the ceiling in the classrooms in Vermont. Yeah, well, they, 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 what they do is they cut up the book. Oh, the okay. book is big. The book is 14 it's inches correct. tall and nine inches wide. So it's a, it's a big book. Yeah. So the classrooms I've seen, they've basically just taken a paperback and they've cut it. Oh, yeah. I thought, okay. So Even the Woodstock I, Pharmacy has them. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if we mentioned the name of it, but the Farmer's Alphabet, I recommend that people start to teach their children to read using that book. And I did that with one of my grandchildren. You just sit them on your lap and you just, and you don't say the name of the letter. You just say, ah, apple, ah, underwear, cup kite because they need the sound before they need the name of the letter and i mean literally you can teach your children all their beginning sounds using her book instead of using some ugly curriculum you know thing you're using truly great art yeah and and not always as you say like there's more to it than just a simple figure i mean the guy in the underwear is dressing in front of a wood stove with the name of the stove so you really 
you get a sense of what life was like. Yes, and I studied uh, wood cutting it in college at Hamilton. That was my favorite art form, and so I just connect with her so much and love her. So is she still alive? Then is that right? Oh yeah, yeah, she's still up there. I don't think she ever remarried. She's still in the same house. I think her son lives down the road from her. I don't think she's doing that much work. But Snowflake Bentley was a book. Yes. Yes. Which is a great book. Yes, it is. And she was really prolific. I mean, she probably did 20 or 30 books, which is pretty good. Pretty good. She, oh my goodness. Well, talk to me about uh, Elizabeth Googe. You've got... Well, Googe was yours. You were the one that put me on to Googe. Did I? Yeah, you did. Okay. So tell me, you did I Saw Three Ships and Linnets and Valerians. I wish you'd do more, but... We're not done. Well, I, I thought she was wonderful. I've never read her. And I got a copy of Linus and Valerians from the library. And I thought, hmm, you know. Perfect book. It's a terrific book. And it really, you know, Rowling's basically say this was the book that mm-hmm. started. Well, no, actually, The Little White Horse is what Rowling's considers her Is that favorite. what she said? Yeah. But that's okay. I, I can believe it because that's it's really an, an alternate world in a way, operating at the same time in the same yeah. spaces. The real world. That's right. I think she, you know, I think there were a lot of English writers of that generation. I used to be able to name them all, but they were all terrific and really used their imagination. We didn't turn out that many of them. You know, Joan, Joan Aiken is another one, Conrad Aiken's daughter, who we published. Oh. Story. She's living in England. She's as much English or more than American. But she has that same sensibility. Mm-hmm. of another world, which I think that tradition in England, yes, you know, is more alive between Stonehenge and all the legends than probably we have Rip Van Winkle, but, you know, they really go back centuries and That's right. it really infuses the literature the way it doesn't here. Totally. And I mean, George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis. Yes, and- exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just and even Tolkien. I mean, that definitely is is a parallel world. I mean, right. and they take it seriously. I mean, Tolkien. It was an exhibit at the Morgan Library. Tolkien was totally immersed. I mean, he had maps, trying to figure out how far hobbits could travel in one day. So <laughs> yeah. the people didn't write him and say, but you know, if their feet were that small, they couldn't do that trip. I mean, he was punctilious about the details of the language that they spoke, yeah. the topography in which they lived. This was a real and living thing for Tolkien. It was no fantasy. It was. It was. Well, let's close out talking about some of the poetry books that you've done over the years. Um, I know my granddaughter completely memorized the children's hour when she was probably about five years old, and they sent me a video of her reciting the whole Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem. She also, I think, memorized My Shadow, The Runaway by Frost. So tell me about those books because they make memorizing poetry so painless for children and so natural. They don't even know they're memorizing it. Well, this credit really goes to Glenna Lang because she was the illustrator of all of them. Yes. And I think in addition to that, she did The Runaway by Robert Frost. Yes. And that she probably read these to her daughter, Esme, who is now old and married. But in the old days when I knew her, Esme was just a kid. And I'm sure that 
she was the daughter of academics and a very, very smart lady. And I think these were her favorite poems. And when she decided to be an artist and an illustrator, it was naturally natural, I think, that she chose to illustrate them and did them in a way that where the colors were solid and bold and the figures were clear. And you really, I think the, the verse that she was illustrating or the paragraph really related to the page. Children could make the connection immediately between what Frost was talking about in terms of the horse and the horse in the pasture and the snow coming down. Yes. And she got it. And they're still among my favorites. We still have most of them in print, not all of them. Yes. Um, I wish we <clears throat> no longer in a position where I can dictate what we reprint, but right. those would be one of the ones I would definitely want to keep in print. Yeah, I think they're timeless. And were they collages, David? Yeah, they were. Um, I think this was a technique that Lance Heidi, who did posters for us, really um, perfected and Glenna saw and made her own. Because if you're doing a poster, we did them silkscreen. So the best way to do them is solid, solid colors. Yeah. And everyone from Matisse to Lance basically worked with cutouts. I mean, they would do cutouts and they would put the cutouts down and then you would cut the stencil from that to do the collage. In France, it was called pochoir. It was basically watercoloring over a stencil, but it's basically the same as silkscreen, which is basically a sponge going over it, not a yeah. more mechanized system than doing it by hand. But it basically relies on solid colors juxtaposed to each other mm -hmm. and shapes, colors and shapes and how they, you know, Matisse was a genius at it, how they interrelate. And Lance was a genius at it. And I think Glenna really saw that as a way to illustrate books, not just make posters, but yeah. in a way, every page of the book is a poster. That, yeah. that was the aim, I think. Yeah. And she brings it off. Uh, it really gets detail. I mean, when you read that Longfellow poem, those daughters are very distinct. <laughs> they're distinct in the poem, and they have real personalities in the poem, and they're distinct in her artwork, too. You really so, have the feeling of laughing Allegra is very different than you know, the, the rest of them. I completely agree with you. I mean, my granddaughter had little motion she did on her own and, you know, each of the girls in, in the Longfellow poem. And of course, it's a story of Longfellow trying to write and his daughters coming in and trying to scare right. him out of, his, right. out of his little cubicle. And I mean, though, instead of our children memorizing, you know, McDonald's commercials, they can be so easily memorizing these, these poems. I mean, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, the, the My Shadow, which I think is my very favorite of, of the three books, where, you know, it begins, I have a little shadow that goes in and out with me, and what can be the use of him is more than I can see, and any three-year-old could memorize that. Yeah. Instead of these lame, silly things that our children are being fed, you know, by Madison Avenue, we need to be back memorizing the wonderful treasures of poetry that have stood the test of time. Yeah. Well, Glenna brought them to life. I know, but you helped. So I just want to say thank you to you, David. You've um, richly embroidered 
um, my family's life. You've richly um, added so much to so many families and so many children. And there's just the power of a great book that will stand the test of time that people, if they buy them today, will read them someday to their grandchildren and hopefully their great grandchildren. I mean, those are the books and that's your legacy. And I am just so grateful for the way you've enriched so many of our lives. Thank you. Well, Carol, it has to be said that, you know, publishers wouldn't exist if it weren't for people like you who made the books public. That's the root (laughs) of the word publishing. You know, it's not to privish, it's to publish. And without, you know, Carol Joy Seeds of the World who see something they like, you don't always see the same thing. Not every bookseller loves the same book, but it's really the passion of the bookseller that, because nobody believes us, they'll believe you. Yeah. <laughs> gets the word out and spreads the word. So I'm equally oh. grateful to everything you've done. Well, you've, you've done a great service to humanity. And I, you know, really love being able to support small, privately run publishers. Um, They're a dying breed and we need to fight to keep that autonomy and independence um, in the publishing world. And and you've really stood for that in so many levels. I really appreciate you, David. Thanks. You take care. Love it. Thank you. Thanks for joining me this week on the Homeschool Made Simple podcast. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help too. Visit my website, caroljoyside.com to subscribe to our weekly email and receive exclusive discounts on my online store where seminars and interviews are available. Be sure to tune in next week for my next episode where I help you homeschool simply, inexpensively, and enjoyably. Blessings.